Hello, hello, and welcome to the Canadian Football Countdown. I'm Ryan Coop, bringing you another edition of our 2021 CFL season deep dive series, this time talking everything Toronto Argonauts. Before I bring in the, the guest of honor for this evening, I do want to mention that we are a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. And as always, we want to acknowledge that this episode of the podcast is brought to you from Treaty 1 territory, traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Ojukri, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Now let's bring in our guest to talk all things Argos. He's a national champion football coach and analyst for Canadian Football Perspective, and one of the hosts of the X's and Argos podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by the great Ben Grant. Ben, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? I'm great. I don't know if I can follow up that introduction with any sort of substance that will equal that. That was that was fantastic. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, happy to have you here this evening to talk through all things Argos. Uh, should be a lot of fun. A very solid season for them uh, this past season, I would say. We'll get into talking about the season as a whole as we do on this series. But before we get into that, I always like to start with uh, how our guests uh, first got into football, into the CFL, etc., and as I mentioned in the intro there, you know, national champion football coach, first of all, congratulations uh, on that. And second of all, uh, how, did, how did you get, get it into all of that as well? All right. Well, I, there's, there's a lot going on there. As I'm old. And so my history uh, sometimes takes a while to get through as I <laughs> go back through some of my bio. But uh, yeah, the coaching I, coaching I got into, uh, it's coming up to almost 20 years ago now. And uh, I've been coaching high school and semi-pro and um, and it's through uh, doing some semi-pro where you actually do have uh, national championships. And so, yeah, the uh, uh, winning a, a national championship over over Calgary a couple of years ago uh, was was pretty cool. It was just a, a really neat thing. And it's something I had never done before because most of my coaching had been high school and they just it doesn't go that far. And I'd won some provincial championships, but that was where the road ended. So it was really cool to to get into that a little bit. But going back to your original question, if we talk about like how I got into the Argos, that one, it, it, I was thinking about it actually today as I was, I was logging on because I, I know you, you know, you do some, some bio stuff typically with your guests and I was thinking about that and I've talked about it before on my show too, but I was thinking it was such a weird chance because really it was Conridge Holloway. Like it was, it was that one individual player. We're talking early eighties now. Um, I just gotten into, into football and it was the NFL that sort of came calling first for me. Uh, I was, you know, six years old, living in Toronto, and the Argos really had not done a tremendous amount, and they certainly hadn't marketed a lot, and so they weren't on my radar at all. I got into the NFL following the Cincinnati Bengals because they just had this amazing Super Bowl run, and suddenly I was sort of hooked on football. And the Argos had this quarterback, Conridge Holloway, come in, who was such an exciting player, and still, like to this day, I still get goosebumps thinking about just how he made me feel watching those games. And, and I saw some of these games on TV early in the season. And I, I didn't even know we had a, a football team at that stage. And I was so excited that, hey, we're playing football here in our city. I can go and see these games. And I was just over the moon and, you know, forcing my parents to, to take me out to, you know, to Exhibition Stadium and, uh, and see these, some, of these, uh, some of these football games. It was just amazing to me. And I, it's not like I knew the NFL rules well enough to even notice that it was a different style of football. I just fell in love with it. And... Conridge Holloway completely captured um, my my attention and my heart, and from then on, I I was an Argos fan, and uh, yeah, it was it was 
it's something that really consumed most of my childhood. Like I, I watched as many games as I could. I, I got out to the, to the park as much as I could and, you know, started playing a little bit. And it was, it was all based on, on Conridge Holloway. And I was thinking, as I said, coming to the show, like, what if they had never acquired Conridge Holloway? What <laughs> would that have changed things for me? Would that have changed my path? Would I be sitting here right now? Would I be covering the Argos? Would I care about the Argos? If it was it that, that one player that, that got me hooked would it have happened organically otherwise or would i have been into something else that's so interesting because yeah one of the big things we always talk about with the cfl is, is the stories of the players and the accessibility of the players and things like that and have uh one player specifically lead to such a fandom queer fandom of the argos i, I mean i can see behind you the listeners can't uh big argos flag big argos helmet uh, uh behind you you're also decked out in your uh, your X's and Argos uh, podcast gear. Uh, talk a little bit about the about the podcast, how you got into into all that. And that was something that sort of happened on its own because we just sort of felt there was a lack of mainstream media coverage. So this this was a conversation I had with um, a really good friend of mine, JB, who's my co-host on on the podcast and and one of the writers on X's and Argos. Uh, we both coached together for a long time and we're both fans of the Argos and it sort of became apparent to us. Uh, I don't know why it hadn't earlier, but it became apparent to us in sort of the, uh, the late 2000 teens. So we got into, you know, 2017, 2018, that there was really something missing. And we kind of figured with our background, knowing what we know about football, which, um, you know, sometimes it's a lot and sometimes some days it doesn't seem like we know anything at all, but, uh, you know, we, we felt like we knew what we were talking about and we kind of thought, you know, we wish there was something like that. And there was some great fan media representation. Uh, you know, the, uh, Argos fan cast, you know, is a, is a favorite of ours. We love what they do and they, they've done some great work. Um, and, uh, you know, Will Gertler with all the, the stuff that he's done as well. There's there's really some fans have gone out of their way to make amazing experiences and content for other fans. But it was coming from fans. And we thought maybe we could provide something in the way of analysis, which you see done so much in the U.S. You, you've got about 500 guys for every NFL team that do that independent work, plus all the professionals and the networks, and they all hire professional analysts and guys that know a lot more than we do, but it's, you know, it's all over the place. You can't, you can't turn on your computer, turn on your phone, turn on your TV without seeing uh, NFL analysis. And we thought, yeah, that's, that's missing for the Toronto Argonauts because the major, the major papers, aside from the, the Toronto Sun, Frank Zicarelli's has done a really nice job of, of covering the Argonauts, but, you know, even on TSN and I love TSN's coverage. I love what they do, but but it's not like you turn on TSN and they're always talking CFL or talking Argos and, and the other, the other networks really ignore it entirely. And so, yeah, we thought we, there's something missing here and we're like every podcast host, we are not in it for the money. Uh, this is uh, just something we thought we could share and, and, you know, hopefully maybe, maybe our parents might listen and we'll see if we can build from there. So you know, that's that's how it all started. And it's it's going really well. It's been building slowly. And I think we're to the point now where X's and Argos is a recognizable name among Toronto Argos fans and among CFL fans. That's awesome. Yeah. You, you mentioned, you know, the lack of consistent coverage from mainstream media. That That's part of the big benefit of the podcast. You know, there, there's tons of them around the CFL covering the ins and outs of everything. X's and Argos definitely a well-established uh, piece of that as well. And uh, it's great to get your analytical mind 
and your insights on all things CFL. You've got the coaching background as well to provide a bit of a different insight. You know, uh, my, myself, I've never been on a football field. Um, so, you know, I can do a podcast. I can give my, my insights as a fan, but uh, it's cool to get some of that extra insight there uh, also uh, from your experience on the field. Uh, or on the sidelines there also. And I would say don't sell yourself short either. I think there's a there's a sort of a old myth about needing to have played football or coached football to to legitimately analyze the game. And that's really not true. You're even seeing now a lot of coaches that are young coaches that are getting into the game who really haven't played. They're analytics guys and they've, you know, they've studied and they've learned. And some of the guys that I follow in the US that uh, do some great analysis work and, and, you know, really even like X's and O's stuff have never played a snap of, of football, but they've learned about it. They've studied it. And, and you can, you can be, I think you can offer more sometimes from that angle. And so, you know, I, it upsets me when I hear people say like, I, you know, I, I don't know, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't play or, you know, I haven't coached or I, you know, it, but that that's okay. That doesn't matter. And so, you know, guys like yourself, um, you can provide just as much insight as, as anybody. And sometimes it might be a little different, but uh, it's it's still insight. It's still something that if you're passionate about it and you follow it and you study up on it, you can be an expert on this game and you can't let anybody tell you otherwise. And so any of the listeners, you know, you, you've, you're sitting at home, you're listening, you're, you're driving to work, whatever it is, you've never played a snap of football. That doesn't mean you can't learn all there is to learn. And it's such an amazing sport. Like having... You know, I, I've played and I've coached and everything else. And I, I probably know about 1% of, of what there is to know. There's so much out there. And that's what I love about it. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a quick story in this, because uh, I'm way off. I, I know you were in the middle of a sentence and here I've rambled on now for three minutes. But let me give you something really quick, because it's something that really opened my eyes to how little I knew about football. And that was a really important moment for me. Um, I'd already been coaching for a you know, fairly long time. And I felt really confident in my knowledge of football and uh you know this unfortunately this story it, the meaning of it changes quite a little bit because uh of the scandal and the and the stories that would come after it but i had an opportunity to meet joe paterno and this was prior to you know everything at penn state turning sideways and this the horrific stories that came out of there and I, so I, I had no knowledge of, of that at the time and so meeting joe paterno for me at that moment was a really exciting thing he was one of the most famous football coaches there there was it was basically him and, and Vince Lombardi and in in talking to him he mentioned that there's nothing that excites him more than a new football book appearing in the local bookstore because he couldn't wait to get in there and see what he didn't know and that was a guy who had been coaching at the highest level for decades and decades and I thought if he is still to this day buying books because he doesn't know enough then I can never possibly uh, get to that point. And that, and that really opened my eyes. And so from that point on, I, I think I became a lot less arrogant about it because I think I was a little bit arrogant. I felt, yeah, yeah, I know. I understand. I'm sure I get it. And I, re- I really don't. And that was a, that was a great moment for me to realize, yeah, I, I've got about 1% of it really down solid, but there's so much to learn and you can't stop learning. That's what I love about the game. Yeah. I think that's all, all really well, well said there. There are so many ins and out X's and O's when it comes to football that, uh, like you said, you know, you're constantly learning as you go along, everybody can have a different perspective, different insight into, uh, what they see on the field, because it's hard to dive. You know, we're going to do a deep dive on the 2021 season here over, over the next, you know, 45 minutes or so. 
uh, and uh, get into as much as we can. And, and that won't even cover, again, 1% of, of everything that probably went on on the field there. But uh, let's get into talking about the 2021 season. Uh, and let's start off with the preseason expectations for the Argos. Uh, just to backtrack a bit, you know, 2019 season, not a great year, 4-14 and 14 season there. Uh, 20, I guess the 2020 off season, uh, they go out and sign pretty much everybody in free agency, it seemed. Uh, that was the running storyline there. No season in 2020. Coming into 2021, uh, what were your expectations for this Argos team? My expectations were high at the end of it, but yeah, like you said, the, we went through a process. So 2019 was a disaster. It was, oh, it was so painful. I remember it, it was about one o'clock in the morning when I had to start my post-game podcast of the 55 to eight shellacking at, to the, to the BC lions. Um, and that was, you know, that was pretty much summing up the entire year. That's how that went. And so, uh, pinball and, and John Murphy basically cleaned house. They came in right at the end of that year. And we didn't know there wasn't going to be a 2020 season until pretty late. You remember that went on for some time. So they'd signed all these guys. I wasn't sure about the 2020 team. There were a lot of names on there. I was watching film of, of some guys like we had, they had signed a player who was a professional rugby player who had never really played since high school. He was a very good receiver. But I remember watching like rugby film preparing for the season and watching some of his high school film. I'm like, I don't, I don't know about, I'm just not sure what direction this is going to take. So it may have been a blessing in disguise for the Argos that that 2020 season didn't happen because there were 40 guys, actually over 40 guys that they signed for 2020, uh, new free agents to sign for 2020 who weren't on the team for the 2021 training camp even. So guys that were Argos and never even once put on the jersey. And the 2021 team did start looking like a pretty interesting CFL team. And there were the big splashes, uh, guys that really never made it to the field a lot of them like you know martavis bryant and we'll we'll see how that works out for for edmonton this year and kendall wright was another big name that was brought in and then charleston hughes of course and and you know cameron judge those guys that did get to play but yeah i felt actually pretty good by the time we got around to late spring and i started being asked about my season predictions i actually felt like the argos had a legitimate shot at winning the gray cup and so my my final prediction was toronto argos win the gray cup over the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I felt they would go nine and five in the regular season, which they did. Um, but I felt Hamilton would actually finish first in the East. I felt the Argos would be second at nine and five um, and they would end up uh, beating Hamilton in the, in, uh, in the playoffs or perhaps in the, in the crossover uh, beating Calgary on the other side or Winnipeg, I wasn't sure which. Um, but yeah, the, my, on the surface, my prediction sounds good. So predicting nine and five and that's what happened but it didn't happen anything close to the way that I thought it would happen. Some of the, some of the basic psychology that my predictions were based on came through just sort of, you know, season game psychology, you know, short week, long week, lots of rest, playing an opponent twice, stuff like that. You know, I did hit on some of those, but yeah, the season looked nothing like I thought it would. And, you know, some of it's because the, a lot of the guys that I thought were going to be contributors weren't. And then some other guys came out of nowhere, guys that didn't really think were going to be, I didn't even know we're going to be on the team and ended up being leaders. So yeah, it was, it was nothing like I thought that the season was going to be, but at the end of the day, my number looked pretty good at, at uh, nine and uh, nine and five and mid season looked great when both Saskatchewan and, and Toronto were leading the, the <laughs> respective divisions. So I felt like a genius briefly, uh, unless yeah. you listen to the details of my show. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. Uh, you hit the nail on the head there with the record preseason. And I feel like it deviates from what I saw the general consensus from a lot of people preseason as well, which I saw a lot of people, you know, based on the four and 14 season, you know, East division generally has the, the, the negative con, you know, thought to it of being a, a weaker division there. I saw a lot of people third, fourth in the East division, I was actually the same way as you. I don't know, remember what I said record-wise, but I know I did go and make the, the preseason prediction on our show. Argos would finish uh, top two team in the CFL this season, which, hey, it worked, right? They, they ended up getting first place in the East Division. I think same as you. I had Hamilton finishing first, Toronto finishing second, and uh, just the West Division being such a dogfight where kind of all the teams even out, evened out there. Uh, but I loved what I saw from them in the offseason. I, I love having Pinball Clemens as a general manager. I think that that's a huge thing there. And, uh, you know, new coaching staff in place seemed like a promising year coming into the season for the Argos. As we get into talking about the season itself, uh, we'll, we'll go through it the way we normally do here, you know, break it up into chunks, a couple games at a time. I think our first one, we got to start off with the first five games or so. Uh, they, they beat Calgary 23-20 in week one. Then they've got a home-and-home home with Winnipeg, uh, which they split that one. Uh, they, they lose 20-7 to in Winnipeg. Then they, they beat the Bombers the next week. A very impressive win there. Fall to the Ticats 32-19 uh, coming out of the bye week. And then in week six, come back with a, a one-point win. First of all, Taking a look at those five games uh, at the start of the season, I mean, coming in, you're looking at the two teams that were in the Grey Cup the season before in Winnipeg and Hamilton. You got bat home and homes with both of those. You've got a game against Calgary to start the year who's up at home and is one of the top teams regularly in the CFL. Certainly seemed like a tall task coming into the season. That's that starting stretch, didn't it? Oh yeah, it, it was brutal. And I, I know I like, I DM'd a, a bunch of the players when that schedule came out and like, you know, what do you think? And most of them were putting on the, the brave face saying, you know, it doesn't matter who we play, bring it on. But some of the guys were like, yeah, that's, that's not right. <laughs> Especially when you looked at Montreal's schedule and they were playing Ottawa every other week. It just didn't seem like things were lining up. And here you start the season against like at Calgary, um, you know, with all these former Stampeders and Coach Dinwiddie, his debut against his, his former head coach and and then going into play the Blue Bombers back to back. You can't even catch your breath. And then then the break in there was supposed to week four was supposed to be against the Elks. But that game was postponed. That was supposed to be the easy one where you got to breathe for a second. And they didn't even get to play that game early in the season because uh, the Elks uh, went through a, a COVID outbreak. And so that game was postponed until later in the year. So then it became, so then it's at Stampeders, Bombers, Bombers, Ticats, Ticats. And that's, no one wants to open the season that way. Now it turned out to be okay. And I think, you know, the, in with my preseason predictions, if I can kind of explain, like my, my thought on this was that I actually felt the Argos had a really good team on paper. And I thought they were going to struggle early on. But to me, the schedule in a way, even though it was so difficult to start was actually ideal. Because if you're going to lose those games anyway, you may as well have those up front while your team is learning to gel. They only had two starters coming back from 2019. It was Shaq Richardson, who'd only played in like three games. They acquired him late in 2019. And Jamal Campbell, the right tackle. That was it. Everybody else in the team was a, a brand new starter. Uh, because, of course, uh, Nick Arbuckle was the, the starter quarterback there, too. So you can't even count McLeod Bethel Thompson in there. And 
it, it, it was going to take them about half the season to gel. So in my mind, they would win a few games here and there just because you usually split back to back. So actually, I, I had them beating the Bombers at home and beating the Ticats at home, which they did. But I, I actually thought they were going to get blown away against the Stampeders. I thought it was going to be really rough at Winnipeg, at Hamilton, and it was to an extent. Uh, but then I kind of looked at the, the second half of the season and thought, they may go on a tear here. They might win eight in a row. Uh, and that would give them momentum going to the playoffs, et cetera. So the beginning of the season didn't start the way I thought, because they, like you said, they, they won that game, the opener in Calgary. Now we didn't know that Calgary was going to have some of the early season struggles that they did. So that seemed at the time, like a, a huge win that maybe was, was less yeah. impressive a few weeks later, but yeah, they came exploding out of the gate. What a, a massive win that was. And it was, you know, right at the end of the game, they, uh, Shaq Richardson forces a turnover, uh, Charleston Hughes jumps on it, you know, one of the big free agent signings and, uh, and they end up, uh, scoring this amazing touchdown. Eric Rogers somehow picks up this, this crazy blitz that was coming in and, uh, and, um, yeah, it was McLeod Bethel Thompson, right? Cause Nick Arbuckle was hurt. McLeod Bethel Thompson yeah. somehow got it out and they, they again had a, ridiculous two-point conversion to Eric Rogers. It just seemed like all the pieces were were falling into place. But then next week they get their doors blown off uh, at Winnipeg. So it, it kind of brought the team back to earth a little bit, which might have been a good thing long term. I think that's an interesting way to look at it, as you mentioned, you know, the, looking good on paper. You need the chemistry, though, to get into place. We saw that with BC a couple seasons ago where they seemingly brought everybody in and they didn't gel on the field, it seemed. Uh, and there were question marks for the Argos there as well. That's an interesting perspective, though, on, yeah, if you're going to take the time to gel, might as well have the hard games early. Now, you do risk potentially falling in the trap of, okay, you're starting the season one and five, one and six, potentially, and you're digging yourself into a hole where, where you might not be able to get out of it necessarily late in the season, or you're going to need to play some perfect ball down the stretch. But, uh, you know, the, like you said, the home and home series are, are typically a split in the CFL more often than not. So uh, it looks like a grueling schedule to begin with. But if you're going to be slow out of the gate, might as well have those home and homes where you almost have a better chance of, of winning those games. It's uh, maybe a better than playing, you know, Winnipeg in week two and then again in week 12 to get them back to back out of the way at the start of the season there. Uh, you mentioned the big uh, the big week one win over Calgary. Yeah, that one I think shocked a lot of people uh, to start the season. Uh, McLeod Bethel Thompson get Nick Arbuckle brought in to be the new starting quarterback. McLeod Bethel Thompson uh, brought back to be the backup. I know there was some camp competition, but Arbuckle's not ready to go. MBT gets the start in this one, gets to show his, what he's capable of. And typical MBT fashion, I feel like. Uh, out of nowhere, just pulls out these big games here and there. This was one of them, I think over 350 yards, two touchdowns in that game. And then coming into week two uh, uh, in Winnipeg, uh, he gets the start again, because how can you not give it to him there? And you think this is a guy that's been around for a while now. Is this now, is he going to take his shot and run with this now? And will Arbuckle see the field uh, coming into that game? Now, it doesn't last very long. He, he struggles greatly in that loss to the Bombers in week two. Arbuckle looks uh, not bad when he comes in uh, in the second half there and then takes over the start in, in week three. But uh, early big thing early season here was kind of the, the back and forth at quarterback uh, between those two, wasn't it? 
Yeah, and it, there was there was a lot going on too because this was a real test of Coach Dinwiddie as well. Coach Dinwiddie was you know, the first first year head coach. He'd had two years to prep for it, but it's still his first time out coaching. And Arbuckle was his guy. You know, he brought in this guy. This was the the guy he wanted. I, we kind of forget Matt Nichols was going to be the quarterback in 2020 for the Argos. That never happened. They end up with with Arbuckle a year later, and you could sort of see like this was that was the. That was the intended path. Arbuckle played in the same system that Coach Dinwiddie sort of, you know, it's a very similar system that he brought with him from Calgary. And the language is the same, terminology is all the same. So really it was supposed to be Arbuckle's job. So it actually felt pretty awkward after that Calgary win because no one was expecting that. Everyone sort of thought, you know, it's going to be tough in Calgary. They lose week one, you know, probably lose week two. And then you bring an Arbuckle and the season can kind of begin. But yeah, it, it, it was interesting because had they won week two, at Winnipeg, I wonder how long I wonder how long it would have been before we got to see Nick Arbuckle. But you know, our, we were kind of um, our our fears were put to rest a little bit in week three because Arbuckle played great and and they beat the Bombers and that you know that's a huge statement win. Arbuckle's first game as an Argo, everyone was on board. You know, you wouldn't have at, at that time week three of the season. There's no way you would have guessed that. Oh yeah, that we're going to trade this guy away later later on in the year. It just seemed like well, this is how we're going to roll now. But Coach Dinwiddie had said from the beginning of training camp, first day of training camp, we were all pounding him with questions about the, the quarterback situation. And right from day one, he said, I need two starting quarterbacks. I'm going to need two starting quarterbacks throughout. And he really never looked at it as one, two. He looked at it as who's, who's playing better, who's most prepared for this, who's, who's my best matchup here. And if somebody's not 100%, well, we'll go with the other guy. We've got two. And that's really how he played it until they got into some cap issues mid-season they had so many injuries just every week it seemed like four or five high-priced guys were down and they got really tight up against the cap and they knew that in the end of the season if they were going to find a way to compete and not just sort of you know bring in some guy off the street they would need to trade away one of their big ticket players and I believe they tried to do that with Charleston Hughes I don't think there were any buyers there and then Nick Arbuckle, there, there was someone interested. And that cleared up a lot of salary room that allowed them to sign a bunch of the Canadian players that they needed in order to, to make their roster legit, you know, late in the season. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was something that completely would have shocked us early on because, yeah, week three, Arbuckle looks like the guy. I know he didn't play great in Hamilton the week after that, but he looked decent again. Uh, Hamilton at home and there's another win. You've got two home games, a win over Winnipeg, a win over Hamilton, Arbuckle's the guy, right? So yeah, that's that's kind of what we felt in the, in the early goings. But back to Coach Dinwiddie for a second, you have to give him so much credit for the coaching job that he did with a veteran team. There's so many experienced players on this team, and he, that's not the job he was hired for. He was hired for a rebuild. That 2020 team that he was going to coach was a rebuilding team, and you get his you know get his feet wet, get get uh, you know get his bearings a little bit while he coaches. You know what probably would have been a you know, a eight and 10, 2020 team, nine and nine, 2020 team, something like that. And then he can, you know, build off that. But here he's thrown right into the fire with this team of veterans, first year head coach, they could have walked out at him, they could have rebelled. And he's, he's so good. And, you know, seeing, getting to see him in practice, getting to see him in training camp, I was so impressed with him and the job he did and the job he did managing those quarterbacks early on was it really won me over. I was skeptical coming into the year. I knew how smart he was. I loved his X's and O's. I wasn't sure if he was going to be able to handle this experienced a room. 
And you saw it in those first few games. So a lot of credit goes to him for those early successes, as well as Arbuckle, McLeod, Bethel Thompson, and that defense that stepped up. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that defense. And in those games against Winnipeg, it was it was very clear right away that this was going to be a legit defense this year, especially the run defense, I thought, was very impressive uh, early on there. You know, you had Brady Oliveira for the Bombers week one run for 120 yards against Hamilton, then basically shut down completely in those two games uh, against the Argos back to back there. And, you know, the defense... Uh, you know, I, I feel like more often than not, uh, when a team struggles, the focus is on the, the lack of ability to produce from the offense uh, in this league. Uh, but back to 2019, I would say there were, you know, a bunch of games where the defense wasn't necessarily holding up their end of the bargain either. Uh, part of that might be a byproduct of the, the offensive struggles, of course. But uh, to see the defense, yeah, early on in this season dial in, you know, you hold Calgary to 20 points, a team that's uh, usually able to put up quite a few there. Uh, you hold Winnipeg to 20, 23 uh, in those first couple of games of the year, like some solid defensive play uh, from a unit that uh, I think was a little underrated throughout the season. We'll get into another game later on, uh, kind of in the middle of the season where they really came out to play there against Ottawa. We'll get to that one in a little bit talk a bit more about the defense then but another thing that uh, kind of came out of nowhere early in these this first stretch of the season was uh, the running back situation for Toronto because coming into the year John White uh, was brought in James Wilder Jr. was the the main running back back in 2019 they bring in John White former thousand yard uh, rusher I thought you know great addition to this team to me, it seemed like over the course of this season, he, he struggled at times. I think a lot of that was injury related. He ended up splitting the time. Uh, you know, that week two game in Winnipeg had 100 rushing yards in that one. I think that was his best game of the season, I would say. Uh, but then the next week, it was out of nowhere, at least uh, to me. I, I didn't see a, have him on my radar. DJ Foster coming in, great game in that week three matchup against Winnipeg and really kind of made a name for himself as this weird running back wide receiver hybrid for this team that, that they used effectively throughout the season. Yeah. Foster was a really exciting acquisition. I was pretty tuned into him. I had, I had actually, he had been on one of my fantasy teams. It wasn't a good fantasy team, but when he was with the Arizona Cardinals and so I knew who he was and I was excited about his mobility. I was excited about his, uh, his hands. And so I thought he might be a player. I got a lot of things wrong on him too, though. And that, that was interesting to see, you know, how he fared once John White was injured for the rest of the season. He sort of became the lead back. I actually thought Foster would handle that role well, and he didn't. He, he was at his best when he wasn't the primary focus. And you see in that game, in that week three game against Winnipeg, where Foster just exploded. He had a couple of really nice runs, including an amazing highlight reel touchdown run. It was while John White was on the field. So you've got, like you said, sort of that hybrid role. Dinwiddie did play a lot of two-back stuff with, with he and, and, uh, and White. And so John White would be in pistol or, or you know, beside, beside uh, the quarterback. And uh, Foster would come across in sort of like jet motion. And, and you know, defenses were more keyed on White because they didn't really know much about Foster. And yeah, he completely exploited that. And so he was a weapon. But on his own in the backfield, especially in run situations, he didn't see a lot of success. And that's where I really missed there. And, and I think the coaching staff was very aware of that this offseason. I know I'm, I'm all out of line here in my chronology, but 
you know, bringing in a guy like Andrew Harris, who we'll talk about a bit later if we've got time, you know, that's, that's what DJ Foster needs. He needs somebody who's going to absorb the defense's focus and that will let him shine. If he's the only guy standing back there, he doesn't really have that between the tackles skill set. He had a few nice runs where he broke through the middle, but that's really not his game. Uh, he needs to be on the outside. And in the CFL, there's so many fast defenders, small linebackers that were safeties in college. You just can't, you can't run wide if they know that's what you're going to do at the snap of the ball. And so, yeah, it was, we, we saw how explosive he was, how great DJ Foster was, but you saw you needed that other guy. You needed the John White or whoever that's going to be to draw on that defense's attention. But yeah, another guy that I didn't see, you know, he obviously wasn't even on my radar because he wasn't even on the team preseason. And yeah, he comes in and, and lights it up. You mentioning all of those things almost has me draw a bit of a comparison to uh, Timothy Flanders, uh, who with Ottawa this past season, you know, he was with Winnipeg a couple seasons ago, kind of a dual back role with Andrew Harris, kind of deployed here and there, used very effectively there, got the starting running back role in Ottawa this year, didn't necessarily take off. So I wonder if there's maybe a bit of a connection between between the styles and the usage of those two guys. For sure. And we actually talked about that a little bit when we were prepping for that first Ottawa game. I don't think Flanders ended up playing that first one, but uh, yeah, it, it was something that, that we discussed as, you know, maybe he doesn't, he doesn't look the same. Maybe it's something to do with his style. Maybe it's because he's now the lead back, but a lot of the running game comes down to offensive line. I, I'm not, I'm not a huge believer in the effectiveness of running backs on their own. I, you know, there is a difference there. There is, there are good running backs and bad running backs but a lot of it has to do with the offensive line. And I know in Toronto, it was something that the team really struggled with. And it's because they had a couple of young guys in there who really didn't have time to even be shown the ropes. So you had Peter Nicastro, who was just a, you know, that year's draft pick. And he was put in there right away. Remember Cody Speller was supposed to be the team's center starting the season. Uh, he ended up on, on the suspended list all season. And so you had Peter Nicastro in there from day one. And he wasn't ready to play center yet. He'd been injured most of camp. Philip Blake ends up playing center. He's out of position. You got Nicastro playing guard. So he's also out of position, but he needed to be there so he could kind of learn the calls and learn the system. So you've got those two guys out of position. Isaiah Cage, the left tackle, is injured for the season. And so Dejon Allen, who I kind of looked at as a guard, you know, he played both guard and tackle at, at Hawaii, but he never played a snap of CFL football. And was he really going to be the left tackle? But he was, you know, day one. And, you know, you've got some experience in, in Blake, but he's out of position. Bladek, you know, he's experienced coming from Saskatchewan and Jamal Campbell with, the, with a little bit of experience too. But just with all these young guys and Philip Blake, your one non-young guy out of position, it was really tough to learn on the fly. And you're sort of, you know, you're teaching with, you're trying to teach. Like coach McAdoo, the old line coach, was trying his best to get as much in as he could, but they're limited in practice time. And you've got other things to do. You're trying to install. You don't have much time for technique. And the running really suffered from that. You didn't really see them. They never really did all season. Even at the end, you know, they, they couldn't. There was no situation where you felt comfortable that the Argos would be able to convert you know, a, a second and two on the ground or a, a third and one was one of, one of the, the worst things with the Argos season last year was third and ones. We just could not find a way to get that yard. And a lot of it is, you know, comes down to, to technique and those young linemen who I actually do think are going to be good linemen, but they weren't ready to be put in that position. Now a three and two start to the season in those first five games, we mentioned the schedule. Uh, certainly you're taking that 
uh, a three and two start given that uh, schedule coming in. Uh, as we move to kind of the middle chunk of the season, next four games here, you got week seven, a 30 to 16 loss to Saskatchewan, uh, then a week eight, 30 to 27 uh, win over Montreal. Uh, two games in week number 10. Uh, it starts off with a 35 16 win over Ottawa and then uh, rounds it out with a tight 24-23 win over Hamilton uh, to end off kind of that four-game stretch there. And then they have a bye week uh, coming out of that, which might not really be a bye week when you just played two games, but uh, according to the CFL schedule, technically is. Uh, but that, that middle chunk of the season there starts off with a loss to Saskatchewan, but then they rally off three straight against division opponents. Uh, what stood out to you the most from this section of the season? Well, as, as is often the case, I misread a lot of things in this, this middle chunk. So that Saskatchewan game, it, the Argos were never in it. I actually felt like Nick Arbuckle played really well in that game. Now, Coach Dinwiddie didn't seem to see it that way. We talked after after the game and I was asking him questions about Arbuckle because from my eyes, just you know, in, in what I saw, I actually felt like he had a pretty good command of the offense. There were other mistakes. There were problems on defense. There were uh, a couple drop balls and a couple... Uh, a couple poorly blocked plays as well that ultimately led to the Argos downfall. But yeah, after that game, I actually felt really good about the direction they were heading in with, with Nick Arbuckle. But I think coach Dinwiddie saw it the opposite way and you never know exactly what's going on. You know, we can't hear what's happening on the, on the headsets and the conversations on the sidelines, or even, you know, even though I'm watching practice throughout the week, I, I don't know exactly what the game plan is and I don't know, you know, what the, um, you know, how, how the game's supposed to break down, but clearly it wasn't, being executed at a level that coach Dinwiddie expected. And that really launched this sort of Macbeth run, which would prove to continue essentially through the end of the season. Cause this led to, to the Nick Arbuckle trade because the next week in, in Montreal, uh, that, that Alouette's game, it, it, it was close on the scoreboard, uh, but it, it was a blowout until late. And that was, that was McLeod Bethel Thompson, not having to do too much. The ground game was working. The defense was working. The, the Argos, you know, built a, a pretty good halftime lead. I think it was, I think it was 21-10 at halftime and they just felt pretty in control. Uh, but then Montreal clawed back late and it got, uh, it got a little dicey at the end, but you know, that was, it was a big win. And, and that was McLeod Bethel Thompson. And that's where we started thinking, well, that's, are they going to stick with Macbeth? And, you know, the next, the next week they, they blow out the, the red blacks, a little bit of a slow start, but they end up uh, you know, the defense came to life, special teams came to life, and that had been a, a real problem early in the year. Uh, and then, and then I think what cemented it for fans, the Thanksgiving Monday game, I think it was Thanksgiving, yeah, it was Thanksgiving Monday, uh, 24-23, the Argos win on the last second Boris Beattie field goal with no time remaining. And man, that was an exciting game. And McLeod Bethel Thompson was on fire in the second half of that game. And he was getting just annihilated in the pocket, but he was hanging in there and guys that you didn't expect to make plays were making plays, you know, an amazing diving catch um, from Dejan Brissett and uh, Ricky Collins Jr. Had a couple of huge catches in there. Everyone remembers the, the 360 Deveris Daniels touchdown. That was, you know, late. It was like four minutes left in the game. And, and it was amazing. You know, the sun setting in the background, Deveris doing this helicopter 360 somehow getting his feet just inside the pylon um it, it was just it felt like magic that game and then Boris Beattie with the walk-off field goal and and it was such an emotional moment too because uh, Jake Reinhardt the um the long snapper 
uh, had been injured for the rest of the season in the previous week's game. And, uh, and Beatty had had his number in what was probably like liquid paper or something like that uh, on the bottom of the, the kicking tee that he was holding up in celebration as the Argos <laughs> stormed the field after that win. It just felt like a team of, of destiny at that point to beat the Ticats in their own building that way. And it was a game that the Ticats fans felt they had put away. You know, sitting up in the press box for that one, I, I, I was a little bit surprised at the attitude among the people in the press box. Everyone had like finished their stories, the Ticats <laughs> win, and it seemed like it was put away because, you know, the Argos were down. But yeah, everyone had, had finished things up. Everyone was, was pretty relaxed. And then suddenly there came the Argos and there was McLeod Bethel Thompson leading the charge. So yeah, that was, that was probably the most exciting game of the season for me. But that, you see, you go back to the Saskatchewan game, the first chunk of that, and then forward through to that that uh, Thanksgiving game in in Hamilton, and it was really night and day. And so the Saskatchewan game was a little bit of a letdown from Nick Arbuckle. And then you see a few weeks later how McLeod Bethel Thompson really did. You know, he had the team now, and it wasn't long after that. I think it was a, f- a few days later. I think that um, it was it was that next week certainly where where Nick Arbuckle was traded. Uh, to uh, the Edmonton Elks, and and then, and then the Argos went in and wet the bed, and Montreal lost by twenty one points. So, but uh, it was it was an emotional roller coaster to say the least. Yeah, this this to me felt like McLeod Bethel Thompson's best stretch of the season, as you mentioned as well. Besides that, you know, game one against Calgary, but you looked very good there. But you mentioned. You know, one of these games here, uh, I think it was that one against Hamilton, you know, put up almost 400 yards passing uh, in, in that game there and looked really good. And, you know, uh, a solid chunk in the middle of the season here. You mentioned uh, being in the press box, having to rewrite stories. I think the Argos did that a couple times this year, uh, potentially, uh, including some of these very close games. But, hey, good football teams find ways to win close games, right? And no matter how you do it, no matter whether your clock management may, may impact that those things, we'll get to that with the BC game once we get to the, uh, the, the final section of the season here. Uh, but you find your way to win, uh, win some of these games, which they did in those close wins over Montreal, close win over Hamilton there as well. Uh, that Ottawa game 35-16 there as I was talking about earlier that's the one where the defense I think had two or three interception touchdowns in that one I just remember a lot of fantasy points uh, (laughs) coming out of that one it was a great day if you had them it sucked if you didn't Um, the defense really stepping up big there you you know special teams as well Uh, Boris Beattie you got to give the guy credit a really solid season from him this year it feels like and there were a good chunk of these games where you look at the stat line and he's going four for four five for five and you know really leaving his mark and and we ended up seeing that in the playoff game as well where the offense could you know well we'll get to there eventually of course but uh, the offense couldn't get going uh, it couldn't get it in the end zone consistency from him in the first half there uh, I don't think he gets enough credit for how solid of a season he had. He he did he did for me, but yeah, I think you know he. I think we had him as our runner up for our our player of the year for the Argos because we felt he was he was the the most valuable guy on the team, uh, and he was our number one priority for off season moves of all the guys that they had to re sign and bring back. Boris Beattie, we had it number one, and for a few reasons, and this will maybe transition us nicely from from that middle chunk of the season to the end of the season, that Ticats game that I talk about on Thanksgiving, 
that was sort of Borsby's coming out party at, uh, you know, a, 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 as a Toronto Hargonaut, he, he really drew attention because of the, what was on the line, you know, in Hamilton, that rivalry last second, it wasn't like a short field goal either. I think it was a 40, 48 yard, 49 yard field goal. It, it was from distance and it, it went way through right down the middle. And that started a streak where Beattie hit, I believe he hit 16 field goals in a row at that point. And we started using the term in the Argos press box, people started using the term the Beattie effect because it actually had an impact on opposing kickers. Um, the BC game in the next stretch that we got coming up, you know, it, it went into overtime. There were, you know, three missed field goals there. We've had field goals that go off the uprights because other kickers going against Beattie, they see the distance that he's logging in some of these kicks. You know, he's good. He'd come up pregame and he'd be good from 60. And, and he just didn't miss. He really didn't miss in the second half of the season. And every field goal kicker that the Argos faced in the second half of the season or in those late stages of the season got the yips and they couldn't hit anything. And that won Argos game. So it wasn't only Beatty going like four for four most days, but it was the opposing kicker going one for four, going two for five, you know, not hitting a single field goal, missing a crucial extra point, which we saw in an Argos win over Hamilton that would have sent the game into overtime, but the extra point goes off the uprights. And, you know, that's, that's the BD effect. And so, yeah, he gets a tremendous amount of credit. I thought, I thought, like I said, I thought he was, he was one of the most valuable players on, on the team. Um, and just to, just to add to that, it's it kind of goes along with the theme of not getting the production from the guys you thought were going to give you the production. Like if I look back to my, my preseason depth charts, and again, just to go over like how wrong I thought it was, I did think the D line would be good, but I thought it would be because of Charleston Hughes. I thought it would be, be because of Odell Willis and Drake Nevis and Cordero Law. And none of those guys were on the field. Even Ronald Ollie, I think, made made one of my depth charts as a starter. But it wasn't those guys. It was it, it was Oakman. It was Ely here and there. It was uh, Sam Achampong, the Canadian draft pick. Uh, Robbie Smith, another Canadian. Uh, and, and those guys were, were making a difference. And Enoch Mwamba was even better than we hoped he would be going in. And so, you know, those guys kind of carrying the defense and the secondary was just outstanding um, when they needed to be. They were playing a pretty tough brand of defense. Their stats, I don't think, stand out particularly because Coach Jones, uh, who had taken over by that point, we, we didn't even discuss the fact that, that, we, that we had the team lose the, off, the defensive coordinator early in the season and he was replaced and, you know, Coach Jones is in there. And the way he called defense was basically bend, but don't break. So they were giving up yards. So it doesn't really appear on the stat sheet. I promise you, you watch the film, those DBs were playing lights out defense. And so, yeah, the, it wasn't, wasn't the, necessarily the guys we thought, but like Boris Beatty, different guys stepped up and, and got it done. And like you say, you know, good teams win close games and that's what was happening. Yeah. And then we get into that final stretch of the season and some wild games here. I mean, it starts off. Uh, I think, like you said, this is right after the Nick Arbuckle trade here, I believe, and uh, 37-16 loss to Montreal. MBT throws four interceptions. William Stanback rushes for over 200 yards for Montreal in that one. Not the ideal first game after uh, naming your new minted. Uh, this is the guy we want as our franchise starter there. Uh, then you have a wild game against BC that, uh, yeah, I think a couple lead changes late, missed field goals. Uh, it ends up going to overtime, just a weird game. Uh, but they pull that one out despite, you know, still not a great, uh, great performance there. 
then uh, who saw this one coming against Ottawa, the 23-20 game, which I, I remember, you know, Ottawa was on a real rough stretch outside of those games against Edmonton. And all of a sudden early in this game, you know, third quarter, it seems like Ottawa has a lead. If I remember, MBT has another three interceptions at this point, not looking good at the start of this game. And then just late in this game, all of a sudden turns it around, uh, starts getting on a little bit of a roll late in this one, and they pull out uh, the win with 11 points in the fourth quarter there. You know, a 23-20 win on paper, you look just at the score, you look at the records of these two teams, you're thinking, oh, geez, that was, uh, that was uh, you know, uh, shouldn't have been that close. And certainly early on, it, uh, it wasn't looking great for them. But uh, it's, again, a testament to this team of finding a way to turn things around in the second half and uh, finding a way to pull out the win in that game, which then leads them into the Week 15 matchup with the Cats, the big battle for first place, two weeks left in the season. Uh, you're playing for that home playoff game, that, that buy in round one. And uh, Toronto came to play 31, 12 win. I, I think uh, if I'm remembering correctly, another huge game by the defense to step up in that one. And uh, they came to play to secure the home uh, playoff game first place in the East there. And then we don't even bother talking about week 16, right? 13, seven loss to Edmonton in a game where the Argos didn't play any starters. Edmonton was this game one, two or three of uh of uh, three games in seven days. I think it was maybe the second one. Uh, ugly football game, maybe one of the worst ones of the season. Not too much to touch on with that one. Uh, but overall, from these other games here in the stretch, what stood out the most to you? I was concerned a little bit with McLeod Bethel Thompson's play in that last stretch because you said, like, you know, they're, they're winning games, but the interceptions, which hadn't been a problem early in the year for him were starting to creep in. And some guys don't play as well when they're not being pushed. You know, he had had Nick Arbuckle breathing down his neck in every other start that season. Arbuckle's traded. And what's that? What's the response in that first game? 37, 16 loss to Montreal who, you know, they're, they're okay. Um, they did exactly what we thought they were going to do. You know, they, it's not like we were even playing against uh, Vernon Adams either. So I think that was Schultz that was in there for that game. And yeah, they just didn't show up. And McLeod Bethel Thompson specifically didn't show up. And the worry was maybe he's not going to be able to play without the threat of someone being there. Because the, the thing about McLeod Bethel Thompson is that he's never really been the guy coming into the year. He's always had to fight for it. You know, his, he had, he played a season that was in which the offense was designed for Ricky Ray. And then he played a season in which the offense was designed for James Franklin. And then, he played a season in which the offense was designed for Nick Arbuckle. He's never come into the year as the anticipated starting quarterback. This year will be the first time he's doing that. And I'm really excited to see that. But he's always playing an offense made for someone else. And I think what motivated him was the threat of not being there. Like, this might be my last time to put some game, some game film down. And so he played lights out. And when that pressure wasn't there, that was the worry. You know, was that what was happening? Was that why they got their doors blown off by Montreal. Was that why they struggled against a BC team that really wasn't playing that well? Was that why they almost lost to Duck Hodges? They were down 11 points uh, mid-third quarter in that one uh, in Ottawa. But then all our fears were put to rest again because like you said, that that last game, that Ticat game, man, that was, you know, I said the I said the Thanksgiving game was the highlight of the season. That, that last game... Uh, against the Tiger Cats to end the regular season was was a lot of fun. 
Uh, and yeah, Chris Edwards had an outstanding game and he's another guy we haven't really mentioned how, how great a season he had. Uh, and you know, he was a real difference maker in that one. And, and to blow out the, the tiger cats like that at home, uh, was a lot of fun. And yeah, like you said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I don't think say more than one or two words about the, the, the Elks game that was upsetting. It could have been interesting. Like if Nick Arbuckle had been the starting quarterback that game, but they didn't even, I don't know what Edmonton was doing there. Cause he made the trip. I remember seeing him out there on the field pregame thinking like, you know, he came all the way out here. Why don't you, why don't you see what you got? But Edmonton had other plans. So it was Cornelius and, uh, and playing against every quarterback the Argos had uh, that wasn't McLeod Bethel Thompson. So we got everyone out there. Cole McDonald uh, got some play. So that was cool. Antonio Pipkin played a half, but yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't good football. And that, uh, that pretty much wrapped up the regular season. I think you could say that about almost anything uh, Edmonton did last season. Not sure what they were doing now. Things have turned around quite a bit this offseason so far, looking great under new president Victor Cooey, but that's a discussion for another day there. Uh, I know we're getting short on time here with you, so we'll talk about the playoff game here uh, quickly right away. But before we do that, well, one guy I, I feel like we, we need to mention here, uh, especially from this final stretch of the season, is Curly Gittins Jr., because he's a guy who was not on my radar at all coming into the year. 2019 third-round draft pick. Uh, you know, early season seemed like he was a guy filling in that Canadian kind of receiver slot, but he was the go-to receiver arguably in this offense in the, in the final stretch of the season. You mentioned not necessarily the guys we think are going to step up do, uh, you know, Eric Rogers preseason he missed a lot of time due to injury, Ricky Collins, Jr. Doris Daniels, like you're expecting those to be the big three seemed like he was the go-to guy down the stretch though. Yeah. And I, I think I had him third on the depth chart at Z. Uh, you know, what's typically the, the Canadian spot. I had, I had Dejan Brissett ahead of him. I think I had Levi Noel ahead of him and he actually did show in camp, but we were so distracted by how amazing Levi Noel was in camp that we didn't really notice how much of a show Curly Gittins Jr. was putting on. And he wasn't on my radar too, because I, I'd seen him, I'd seen him play in university and I felt like I had a real sense of who he was watching him play at Laurier. He was, he was a really talented receiver, but there are a lot of really talented receivers in U sports that that don't really make a, an impact right away and don't really, or sometimes never do. And so, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't at all on my radar and yeah, what a year. And from the outside, that's the, the part that excites me so much. And another reason I'm excited about him again this year, you never see production from Z. That's the, you know, he's, that receiver is the furthest away to the field side, so to the wide side of the field, it's hard to get the ball to, to Z receivers. And so 2019's Jimmy Ralph, Jimmy Ralph playing Z got, you know, maybe one catch a game, something like that. He just wasn't involved in the offense. Curly Gittins Jr. was a couple catches away from leading the team in, in receptions and yards, playing the spot that is the most difficult to get the ball to. So think about that for a second. If you are able to get Curly Gittins Jr. the ball that many times, and he's able to get that many yards from Z, what's it doing to the rest of the defense? How do they have to compensate for that? Who else is now going to be open? And the guys who are going to thank him for last season's performance are the other, are the other inside receivers this season because you're going to have to pay attention to Curly. You can't leave him alone. You can't leave him with a 20-yard cushion, which you'll see them sometimes do, him being so wide out there. And that's not going to happen this year. 
And so that's going to open up corner routes for whoever's in there next to him, you know, Jawan Breskison or, or maybe it's, you know, Marquis Ambles or, or Speedy Banks, you know, who knows who's out there. So, you know, the, his, his performance last year just excites me so much for what potential there is this year, because now he's on the radar and everyone else is going to be benefiting uh, from that. Yeah, then we quickly get into the playoff game here, the East final. Uh, Hamilton comes to town. You had that big game a couple weeks ago against Hamilton where the Argos delivered. Had a couple close games earlier in the season. This was really looking like it was going to be a great matchup. I think a lot of people were still favoring Hamilton on the road, kind of, it seemed to me, coming into this because uh, they did play some pretty good ball down the stretch and uh, also a good win over Montreal the week before. Uh, but early in this game, it seemed to be all Toronto. Uh, first half, they end up coming into the half leading 12 0. Uh, it seemed like everything was going right except getting the ball in the end zone there because that comes off of the foot of Boris Beatty four times. And uh, like they did the week before in the East semifinal against Montreal, Hamilton uh, put the pedal to the metal in the second half. This is where Dane Evans comes in, goes a perfect 16 of 16, 249 yards and a touchdown. Ticats go on to win this game. Uh, what, what's the, what's the story in this one to you? It was, it was, they had the chance to put it away early and there were a few key plays. I I've watched that game a couple of times since it took a while. It was about a month that I let it go. And then I decided, I think it was over, you know, after the end of the, the sort of Christmas holidays, I thought, all right, I'll, I'll take a look. Uh, and yeah, they just, they couldn't cash in. There was one play that really stood out where they got the matchup they were looking for. They were, I think it was second and goal from the four or the five. DJ Foster draws Jagarid Davis in man coverage. And you, you've got to go there every time. McLeod Bethel Thompson sees it. You've got this, this giant defensive end covering your fastest running back. And Foster's got a wheel route. And I have no idea to this day how Jagarid Davis caught up to that football. DJ Foster was wide open. McLeod could have led him maybe a little bit more, but you typically don't for a wide open running back in the end zone. You don't want him diving for it in the corner. I thought he threw a nice ball. I, I have no idea how Jagger Davis got there. I'm glad he's going to be wearing double blue this year. But that was that was a big turning point for me because if that's a touchdown, I think this game's over. And instead, you end up getting stuffed four times, four field goals in that first half. It's and and the half ended. Let's not forget about how that half ended too. There was a heroic play by Dane Evans where Shaq Richardson ends up with the ball in his hands. He's running it back the other way. I thought he was going to score. And at the very least, it's going to be a, a Boris Beatty field goal uh, at the end of the half to make it 15 nothing. And somehow Dane Evans strips that football and we go into the second half, 12 nothing. And then there's a kick return touchdown uh, to, to start, you know, actually, it was, I think it was a punt return touchdown where the Argos just completely blew contain. And, you know, Hamilton's offense hadn't done anything all day. And Dane Evans, you know, when he came in in the first half, he was efficient. He, as you said, he was perfect. But they weren't moving the ball downfield. They weren't, they weren't generating any offense. And that punt return touchdown just broke it open. And Dane Evans transformed into Joe Montana. And it was, it was over. It just, they couldn't do anything after that. And Boris Beattie's six field goals were not enough against the best football Dane Evans will ever play in his life. Uh, he, and I, I don't say that disrespectfully. I like Dane Evans. I think he's a great quarterback. He will never play a half of football like he did in that Eastern final, because I, I, you know, I almost say no one will, but not many people will. That was an amazing half of football. He was, he was on fire and he was unstoppable. And, you know, there's not much you can do. I just sit, sitting up there, just shaking my head. Like, I, I don't know what you do. 
Yeah, well, he'll never have a higher completion percentage in a game <laughs> that's than he did true. there, right? No, so, one, no one ever will. No one ever will. You really can't top that. Uh, disappointing end of the season with the with that playoff loss, but overall, first place in the East, 9-5 and five season, uh, especially after the 2019 year. Yeah, I, I'd say this was a, a positive year for, for the Argos in the, how things go. Is that the best way? Is that a good way to sum it up? Disappointing end, but positive season and uh one to build off of coming into 2022 i think so and it's the second best result we could have hoped for the best result would be winning the great cup the second best result isn't losing the great cup because that's upsetting the losing the great cup's terrible the second best result is hamilton losing the great cup and so <laughs> that's what argus fans are hoping for at the beginning of every season so if we're not going to win the great cup because that's what we want then at least let's have hamilton lose the great cup and they're really good at doing that so <laughs> It's something that uh, we were able to celebrate a little bit. And, you know, that made the season feel just that much better. Um, you know, it's, it, was a, it was a tough pill to swallow, that loss uh, in, in the Eastern Final, especially with there were so many Hamilton fans in the stands. And, I, you know, as much as I give them the gears, I love Hamilton fans, the way that they support their team. Uh, I think the passion that they have for their organization, the way they travel is fantastic. And I love that about, I'll say that about all CFL fans. So, you know, anyone that's supporting a CFL team, you know, my hat's off to you. I think that's fantastic. I love what you do. I love how much passion you have and Hamilton fans included. And while I give the team a hard time and I always will, and I'll give their fans a hard time, really truthfully, I love them. I think that they, you know, they, they really made that game uh, exciting. There was so much energy in the, in the building, but it was pretty hard, you know, walking back to my car at the end of that game, I just, you know, the, all the partying that was going on in the parking lots, uh, I didn't feel great, and I can only imagine how the players felt. But yeah, they cheered us up a couple of weeks later, so it, it was all good at the end of things. Well, the Argos have been uh, pretty busy so far this off season. If we wanted to get into all the off season stuff, it would probably take a whole another hour of the podcast. So we won't go deep into things. But uh, one quick question for you: you know, uh, just listing off some of the big names coming to Toronto now. You you've got uh, Marky Thambles, Jagarin Davis, uh, Brandon Banks, Andrew Harris, a number of other guys there as well. Uh, who excites you most uh, of these new additions in the double blue? It's hard to say because I kind of want to see. Like I guess I guess if I have to answer that question right now, I'd probably say Jagarin Davis, just because I know what you know. We played him four times last year, so I I, I know what what he can do and how he can ruin a game and win an Eastern final. So I think he's probably the, the guy I'm most excited about at the moment, but there's some other guys in here that I I'm really excited about, you know, Andrew Harris, you know, I think that's great. I, I really like him. I, I'm not as excited about him as I am about some of the people that we don't really know what we're going to get uh, out of. So it's actually some of these uh, speed receivers that they brought in, you know, guy, uh, Darius Robertson from Wayne state. I really want to see what, what he has to offer. I don't expect him to be starting, but you know, you've got him, you've got Ernest Edwards who played a little bit in Edmonton. He's out of Maine. He's got a ton of speed. And that was something that the Argos were really missing last year. And so they've taken a chance with Brandon Banks. You know, he has been a speed receiver. He didn't quite look the same last year, but his, his vertical speed looked good. It was his, his side to side seemed like it had slipped a little bit, but you know, he may stretch out the defense and, and they didn't really have that from the inside. They didn't have a slot guy. Because they had Chandler Worthy, who can, you know, he's one of the fastest players in the league, but he's really not a fit as a slot receiver. They tried him there a little bit, but he's meant to be on the outside. And outside speed receivers, especially to the field, because you're not going to put him to the boundary because you've got, you've got diverse Daniels. You know, they don't really open it up the way that a slot receiver with speed does. And so 
if you have one of those guys, you know, maybe it's Brandon Banks, maybe it's, maybe it's Ernest Edwards, maybe it's Therese Robertson, maybe it's, you know, someone like that who can take the top off the defense that is going to open stuff up for the other receivers, whether that's, whether that's Ambles, whether that's Breskison or, or Rogers, you know, coming from the, the boundary slot side. So I'm really excited about those guys. I'm also really interested to see Winton McManus, who I expect to be the starting will. Cameron Judge was traded for Royce Mechie, which, and he's, he's another player I'm interested to see because they, they're, I think they're going to go Canadian at the safety spot because they, they've got uh, somebody in Haggerty that they feel like they need on the team because he's such a gifted special teams player. He's a safety. And so it makes sense to basically turn that position into a Canadian spot. So Mechie's in there. Uh, playing safety with Haggerty behind him. And and now with Cameron Judge gone, you've got Winton McManus, an American linebacker. If you're going Canadian at safety, you can go American linebacker at will. And McManus's film is great. He watches stuff from Calgary 2017 through, through 2019. Uh, he's a lot of fun. And this secondary is so good that you might have, uh, you might have Deshaun Amos not starting in that secondary. And we know how good he is. And you might have Tristan Deku not starting, who I think is a fantastic player. And he may not be out there. Cresden Butler, uh, maybe uh, maybe Jeff Richards, you know, he may not be out there. Robertson Daniel probably isn't starting. This secondary is going to be so good. So, you know, making that safety spot Canadian, having the flexibility, bringing in some extra guys like Amos. And, and they brought in uh, D'Angelo Amos, um, uh, Deshaun's brother, uh, who I think I'm also excited about because he's a kick return, punt return specialist. And that's something they didn't have last year. So, you know, what this coaching staff and what the management pinball Clemens and, uh, and always uh, tip of the hat to Vince Magri, who I think is one of the best uh, executives and one of the best, he's, he's one of the best scouts period. I know his job title has changed and he's recently got a, a promotion. He is a great scout. He really sees talent and he's found some guys that I, I couldn't be happier about. So I'm really excited for training camp this year. It's way easier now because I know where most of these pieces are going to fit. So I can sit back there and watch some of the talent that that Pinball and Magri have have brought in. And, uh, you know, they've, they've filled the holes that were very evident from last season. So I guess that's I guess that's my summary of all these moves that have been made. Yeah. And the nice and exciting thing is we really don't need to wait long before we get to see them out there on the field for training camp. We're just about uh, two months away now. Uh, we've got the draft coming up at the start of May. We've got uh, training camp start in the middle there. Preseason, I think, starts like the 23rd of May. So uh, two months and two weeks from now, back to uh, CFL football on our fields. Can't wait for that. Uh, ben, it's been an absolute blast having you here on the show today talking through everything. Argos, appreciate you taking the time here to join us. Uh, before I do the final wrap uh, wrap up of the episode, uh, plug your stuff. Tell people where they can find you, everything you've got going on. So you can follow me on Twitter at Ben double underscore grant, and you can follow X's and Argos on Twitter at X's and Argos. Uh, you can find all my stuff at X's and Argos.com. And I also um, uh, do some work with Canadian football perspective with uh, Marshall Ferguson. And, and, you know, if you, if you want to prepare for the draft, uh, I don't think there's much better preparation uh, you can do than than following the guys at, at Canadian Football Perspective. Those guys know the draft inside and out. I'm only just starting now. I've just started this week going through some U Sports film and, you know, seeing what, what they have. And, you know, I do put uh, some of my stuff out there on Canadian Football Perspective, and I will join them from time to time on their pods. But, man, those guys know U Sports football. They have followed these guys all season long. And if you want to get a feel for, no matter who your team is, uh, you want to get a feel for, you know, what exactly they're doing. 
uh, Wade and Connor, those, those guys um, are, are the people to follow. Marshall's great too. You know, you can't go wrong with that crew, but yeah, start with, start with Wade and Connor. They've got their top hundred. They've got uh, podcast after podcast of, of great listening. And that's where I started my research. I'm like, well, let's see what, let's see what they think. And then I'll kind of go from there and, you know, I'll, I'll start putting together my list and I'll come up with my, my big board, probably the week of the draft, but I got a lot of work to do. But uh, in the meantime, you got to check out, uh, you got to check out Wayne and Connor at, uh, at CF Perspective. Absolutely. Some great work going on there. Some great work from yourself with CF Perspective and with X's and Argos. I encourage everybody to check it out on your favorite podcast platforms and uh, follow Ben on Twitter for everything else he's got going on there as well. You can find us on Twitter at CF Countdown Pod. You can find myself there at Cooper Trooper 42 starts with a K in case you don't know. Uh, check out all the other great shows from around the Canadian football podcast network as well at CF Pod Network on Twitter. Uh, and uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening on, uh, do all the fun things like comment, subscribe, review, comment. I think I mentioned that one already. Uh, share the show with your friends. Help us grow the show. Appreciate that. If you're interested in uh, CFL fantasy content, uh, check out the Canadian Football Fantasy Fix on YouTube, a weekly show I do during the regular season as well. A bit of off-season content there too. Uh, you can check all of that out for all of your CFL fantasy wants and needs. And uh, we'll be back here hopefully next week again with another edition of this off-season deep dive series. And uh, in the meantime, uh, on behalf of our special guest, Ben Grant, I'm Ryan Coop saying thank you for listening. Take care. Have a good one. Bye.